Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. A trigger warning. This episode includes brief discussion of sexual violence and suicidal ideation. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Ja Love Serrano. Ja Love is a drag entertainer. He's also an HIV and AIDS activist and a health educator, and he himself lives with HIV, so he's going to tell us all about it. Ja Love, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We're so honored to have you on. Thank you, Lauren, so much for having me on. I don't think that we, I don't think there could never be enough conversations about health, wellness, um, community activists. I mean, I think it's a, a continuum and, uh, and that's why we're here. We're here yes. to be the voice of the people and our absolutely. voices as well. Yes, absolutely. And your voice is a very strong one in the HIV AIDS community. And I am just so excited to uh, hear more about you. And let's just start at the top of your story. Can you tell us how you first got your diagnosis and what steps you've taken to control your health since then? Oh, absolutely. So, we, uh, so we're going to go back. We're going to go back to like, not the beginning, but some at the beginning. Um, yeah. I was uh, born, born and raised in the South Bronx mm-hmm. in um, uh, Afro-Latino, Catholic-inspired house. Um, right. So with uh, six siblings, two-bedroom apartment, I've wow. always felt like the Black sheep of the family, but I always knew there was something different about me, right? Mm-hmm. I always knew that you know, I kind of did this way more different than the boys. You know, I kind of more felt and seen things of what my mom and my sister was doing, and that felt more natural to me. Mm. So um, entering high school, I knew that I wanted to explore my sexuality. Yeah. And with exploring my sexuality, I was on the spectrum of like, I'm bi-curious, you know, I'm just, you know, all these things. Mm. Um, but my friends were like, you're gay. My, you know, everybody <laughs> was hard. telling me, 
Yeah. Really when you're not ready to accept that for yourself yet, it's hard to have people being like, yeah, gay, you know, like just right. on yes. it when you're not ready for that. Exactly. And so my mom's sex ed was don't bring a girl home pregnant. Already <laughs> knowing that I was questioning my sexual, I was like, check, that's not going to happen. Right? <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> and so, and then the high school curriculum was so heterosexual based. I knew everything about HIV, sexually transmitted diseases, infection, pregnancy, but I only associated with that because of my teaching that that only happened when you engage in heterosexual sex. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so because the um, sex ed curriculum was comprehensive or inclusive of the LGBTQI community, I took the liberty amongst my friends to be one of the first ones to start engaging in sex because I actually used um, me lying about having sex to gain popularity. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, we all had that one thing. friend. In, yeah, we all had that one friend in high school that said it, they did it, but we know we didn't know if they did it, but they have good enough information. So then, you know, they become that go-to person. Yes. <laughs> so I became that person. You just, were the Samantha. <laughs> yeah, I was the Samantha. <laughs> and, um, and so lying about having sex worked and I became super popular, but then... Mm. People started asking me questions that I really couldn't answer. So the thing that I needed to do was to lose my virginity. Mm. And so I decided to lose my virginity my second day of my sophomore year of high school, which um, I met I met this guy in the village. Mm. I uh, I didn't know if we was gonna connect, but I was like, if I see him again, I'm gonna give I'm gonna, I'm gonna give him my number. Right. I happen to, I'm happy to leave the village again where a whole bunch of gay people in New York City um, hang out and I, we exchanged numbers. And I knew then that I was going to lose my virginity. We exchanged numbers, we talked for a few. I skipped my second day of my sophomore year of high school to have unprotected sex and contracting HIV my first time. Wow. That's got to be something, I mean, is that something that left you with fear about sex too because your first sexual experience was one that left you with a diagnosis absolutely and it definitely changed the landscape of how i view sex myself life completely because um i learned later on in life that the consensual sex that i had actually turned into rape because wow. being that i was so inexperienced my first sexual encounter i you know I didn't want to continue, but he was just like, well, you're here. I want to finish. And I was just like, and I had to wait. I was a small, smaller, frail guy at the right. time. He was a much more advanced, bigger guy than me. And um, I learned later on that no means no, even though, you know, you can start from consent and that if you do not want to continue in that interaction, that your wishes should be respected. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so... So with that, so that with that being said, then also finding out later on that this guy was HIV positive, mm. I was just like, oh, okay, okay. So first time me having sex, yeah, fact HIV, and also um, have a story of rape in there. Then um, what you would call it, still not exploring my um, sexuality to the fullest. I got kicked out of my mother's house for being for being gay and, and other things. I was wondering whether there was going to be a strict Catholic oh, code involved there. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh, completely. Absolutely. Um, and so picture this. 2001, I um, lost my virginity. Didn't know at the time that I contracted HIV. Got kicked mm-hmm. out of my mother's house, dropped out of high school, and turned 16. That oh my was gosh. My in 2001. Wow. So how did you get from there to here? So how did, so 
<laughs> so my HIV journey looks like, so um, I'm kicked out of my mother's house. I'm homeless, high school dropout. Hmm. Thank goodness for my aunt taking me in. Um, and so living with my aunt, my aunt um, took me in, but I knew that I couldn't live in somebody else's house for free. So hmm. I started working at McDonald's for five fifteen an hour. That was minimum wage then. Wow, yeah. And... <laughs> And, I remember. I was in New York then too. I remember. <laughs> but you know, you I know. No, working papers was like the stamp of like I'm grown. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So, um, I'm working now, living in my aunt's house. The guy that I had unprotected sex found that I found out it was rumored to be that he was HIV positive. So he didn't know at the time. No, he knew, but oh, wow. Yeah, he knew, but um, he but didn't, didn't share he, it. No, he didn't share with me. Found out that he was able to share it with his whole congregation, his church, but wasn't able to share it with me, which I really don't fault. I don't fault anybody for me contracting HIV. If anything, if I, uh, if I fault anything, is the systematic oppression that we'll talk about later on that should have been yes. in place that I would have had a better understanding of who I am. Yeah. Uh, More inclusive sex education would have made a huge difference. Uh, you, I, I can't stress enough how that could have been a huge difference. And that's why I do part of my daily. So, mm. so with the rumor in my head, not knowing that now that I could have went to get tested mm. because I thought that um, at the time that if I tested positive because I was a minor, that they would have called home. Not knowing that mm. when it comes to New York state law, as long as you're 13 years of age and above, if you give consent, you can get tested for any SCI, STD, including pregnancy, and now also treated. Wow. And the the treatment for HIV without parental consent has been recent, but testing has been in law and practice for for years. I didn't even know that. So that's, I mean, we're learning right now, guys, like you can get tested and no one has to tell your parents if you're over 13. In New York state. In New York state. Yes. In other states, it differs, but in New York state. Um, So it took me a while to get tested. So I didn't get tested until I was about 18, 17 going to 18. Because at that mm-hmm. point, I'm an adult. If anything comes up, I will know. Um, and you I'll didn't have that. any symptoms, obviously, it sounds like. Um, so through, through from, from the first time of contracting sex, right, I contracted HIV through, through sex, I didn't have sex with anybody until I got tested. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't learn until I started learning about HIV Throughout those years, before I got tested, I was um, receiving symptoms, which was mm-hmm. opportunist infections that were coming up. Um, even when I was sero- seroconverting, which means when I was um, the, the virus was taking over my body, after my first sexual encounter, that um, those were symptoms of me um, me developing HIV. Oh, um, wow. And then the opportunist infections that I was um, experiencing, not knowing, was like um, thrush. Hmm. which is a, a, a fungus in the mouth, uh, a, a PCP pneumonia, hmm. uh, which is a certain type of pneumonia that HIV positive people have um, when their immune system is compromised. But I had no idea that this was, you know, I had shingles. Lord have mercy. Wow. But you were no. also young and bouncing back probably. Yeah, young and bouncing yeah. back. But I'm telling you, nobody ever wants shingles in their life. <laughs> no, I've heard it's really painful. Yeah. Oh, you don't want not even the air to touch you. The only yeah. soothing um, sensation is water hitting your body. Mm. Um, so experiencing all these things, not knowing that that was core, that was connected to HIV, finally get tested. 
Um, but at that time, it's the, the standard uh, procedure was that you waited two weeks to get your results. Wow. Yeah, and, that's a long time to wait with such a serious diagnosis hanging over yes. you. Okay. And then all the things that go through your head, right? So oh, gosh. Tested, you know, you're just like, I don't want this disease. You're, you're thinking about the, the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. What would you do different? Well, trying the to make stigma. The stigma associated with, with HIV and AIDS and this idea that it's like a death sentence, like it's like the yeah. same as getting a cancer diagnosis when there are so many people like you who are living and thriving with yeah. the right kind of treatments. Yeah. And, and that's because, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, I guess Google's our friend, but then Google also shows you some of the beginning history of the epidemic and also that imagery and that I still have to combat that still to this day. Right. Yeah. And that also it was stigmatized, highly stigmatized. Um, that being a gay disease and then being a, yes. being a, a, a black gay man, that it's, you know, all these things are still stigmatizing why people just like, it's their problem, not a weak problem. Yes, absolutely. It's not thinking about the greater community. It's people going, well, it's not affecting me, so it's not my problem. Right. Yeah. You know, um, even with the numbers coming out that uh, unfortunately that the highest cases are, well, good one, here's a strong fact. The highest cases in the United States are men who have sex with men. So that's why it's perceived the United States as still as a gay disease. But globally, mm-hmm. HIV is a heterosexual disease. Yes. That's, yeah. And that doesn't surprise me, actually. Especially, I think it's like in Africa, there are some really high rates in certain countries, aren't there? Yeah. Uh, because there's even more stigma um, in some of those cultures um, about, you know, whether or not you share it with a partner and people having affairs and multiple partners and things like that and passing it on to their children. Yep. Because in... And uh, in America, this, uh, this, the HIV strain that we have here um, is that the guy is, is the more highly infectious partner. Mm. And um, in, in Africa, it's HIV 2, the strand 2, where the woman is more infectious than the guy. Wow. Oh, gosh, yeah. I didn't even know there were two strands. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah there's two strands and subcategories and what's more prevalent in communities and, and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. like You are dropping some major knowledge bombs on me today. I love this. Yeah, you know, so that's why you can see why it could be shipped, the, the, why it's more heterosexual known, um, seen as globally. more globally. Yeah. Um, so now I'm tested, waiting the two weeks. I'm scared out of my wits. Yeah. Um, but I, Did you I, tell I, anyone too? Were you completely alone in this? I was, I was completely alone in this because I already heard the rumors that HIV is something that gay people get and die from. And so... I was already not even out to my family. Yeah. And so then to have this also associated with this, already knowing how they felt about um, gay people, I was just like, okay. It was something that I had to deal with internally. Yeah. Um, and so when I finally got my diagnosis, I got to the clinic, everything started, everything happened in slow motion. It's like, it's like with something somewhat of bad news, not bad news, when you're going to get some devastating news. Yeah. It's like... Your, your world becomes a movie. I, you know, I went to the clinic, the door closed in slow motion. I felt like I started hearing violins. I'm looking around. Yeah. <laughs> Something that you see out of a movie screen, but it was actually happening. And when the words rolled out of um, my doctor's mouth, that I was HIV positive, it went in one ear and went out of another. One yeah. thing about HIV and AIDS is something that you're dealing with personally. If you don't look or feel or think it, you're not going to. Mm. And um, they gave me all the pre-counseling and, you know, what the next steps was. But in the back of my mind, since I was going to die tomorrow, let me do everything I want to do today. And so I left the clinic that day and I completely went into denial mode. 
and I just started to live for me. Mm-hmm. I got myself back into high school, graduated high school, got myself. That's amazing. Out. So it motivated you to succeed. It did. It, it it did because there was there was a small period of depression and 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 suicide thought and, su- mm-hmm. and suicidal thoughts because I was just like I didn't know how I was going to live, but I was just like it was just like. Then I went into this survival mode. I was like, okay, wait, no, I want to, I'm young. I want to accomplish more things. And so, you know, that, that's, that was the motivator for me to go back into high school, graduate, get myself into college. Um, always wanted to pursue being a professional background dancer and model. Mm. And all these things started happening. But where, where I was failing at was that I wasn't taking my health serious. And right. so I, I wasn't on medication while I was pursuing all the great things and my life was, was looking great. I was um, in care at that point. I finally did have a doctor, but because of the stigma and me not self-internalizing and accepting my diagnosis, I just was like, "That's one thing that I don't want to do." Um, it took it took for me to go down to an AIDS diagnosis and develop a form of cancer when it was just like, "This is your reality, and if you don't get your life in track, you won't be here to see the rest of what life has." Been. And that happened to me around 2008. 2008, I landed myself in the hospital, um, lost 11 pounds. Mm-hmm. I was no more than, I could have been no more than like 150 to 160 around that time. And you're a tall guy too. So this yeah. is something like that's very thin for you. Yeah. Yes. So I lost 11 pounds in the hospital. The doctors don't know what's happening. They're like, they started pretty much saying, like, I think you need to start making arrangements, calling who you need to call, because we don't think you need to look past, you know, having a diagnosis of AIDS and cancer. Oh, my God. And, and you're, like, in your, what, early 20s at this point, too? Yeah, early yeah, early 20s. Early 20s. <sighs> and, um, and I was just, like, I remember, like, yesterday, I said, I'm not a, a religious person. I'm very spiritual. Hmm. And I said a prayer in that hospital bed, and I was, like, Lord, you see me through this, and I'm going to do your will. Hmm. They sent me home that uh, they sent me home after that week in treatment in the hospital with a bag of medication and pretty much was like Godspeed. If you come back, it'll be a miracle, but we we don't see that. Wow. Um, but the resilience that I had, that I was just like, I want to live, like I want to live. Hmm. Um, they also gave me the the doctors also gave me the information. You know, if you stick on your medication, the form of cancer that you have will go in remission once your immune system is healthy. Oh, wow. Okay. How your immune system to get healthy if you stay consistent with the medication. This is further proof about cancer being a chronic illness, you know, and, and also what I love about the way you're sharing this story and I, what I want everyone to really key into is that this concept of denial, this idea that when you get a diagnosis, it's suddenly the end, everything's in slow motion and you just go into survival mode and you don't take care of yourself. This happens to all of us yes. living with chronic illness at some point. Yeah. And, you know, I really want everyone who's tuning in to understand that like AIDS is a chronic illness. HIV is a chronic illness, just like lupus is a chronic illness, just like MS is a chronic illness. There's just different ways to manage them and different ways to contract them. But the reaction emotionally is exactly the same. Yeah. And, and then how people have their levels of how they want to be empathetic to you based on your condition right, right. And that's all another conversation we can have um and i'll talk to you about how that happens how that shows up in the hiv world so mm-hmm. now i'm now i'm in the hospital i said my i mean i'm out of the hospital now i'm sticking to my medication um 
I, because of the medication and my resilience, I gained my 11 pounds back. Mm. Cancer went into remission. Amazing. My immune system had a slow recovery to a healthy, to a healthy level, but because it can, the cancer damaged my immune system, but it was, I was still able to still come back bigger, better, and greater. Mm. Um, there were a few jobs that I've taken in my journey as a peer educator to educate the community about HIV and AIDS, but I left it at one point. But after my, my full recovery from being in the hospital and not, and they for not seeing me living, mm. I, from, I from then dedicated my life to educating people about my diagnoses and um, bringing a, a strong awareness to HIV and AIDS. And how that came about was that you really need to become your own healthcare advocate with your diagnosis because yeah. the minute that you're able to fully get all the education that you need and never end research on whatever illness that you did because there's always new information, medication mm -hmm. coming out. And so I needed to know all that was happening in my body so that when me and the doctor was having a conversation, it was a me and you and not you talking to the illness and I'm just staying idle. Yes. Um, and, and that really helped because I was just like, okay, now I understand. Now I'm better able to have the conversation with people, with partners, friends, um, communities, as far as like what's happening with me because people are going to ask the questions. As, as, as soon as you start telling your story or even you start opening to one person, the questions are going to come. And mm -hmm. I think the best way for you to help yourself is to be have the best, all the knowledge that you can so that you can make the conversation easier so you can start building a strong support system. Because some people honestly really don't know how to be there for you because they're just like, do I, you know, and do I need to, do I, do I hug? Do I be sad? Right. You know, like. Right. Um, and so, Again, such a similar experience in so many other chronic illness groups. Yeah. You know, like right. this is the exact, like people don't know how to react. So you have to teach them how. Mm -hmm. Which I and love the, about that. Yeah. Yeah. But see, so here comes the, where they choose to be, right? Some people do feel it is your fault if you contract HIV through mm. your behaviors. And so they're more accomplished. They're just like, yeah, you know, like, you know, but you did that to yourself. It's like, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Did that to um, yourself without any knowledge about how it could be contracted. Yeah. Uh, right. um, you know, but if you are if you are perinatally infected with HIV, there is a whole different love, care, support. For individuals mm -hmm. that were born with HIV versus individuals that contracted it through whatever behavior, right? Right. And if it's like if we're gonna care about HIV, if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna show your care here, you have to give it across the board. Yeah, but okay. this is also connected to sort of like how prudish and puritanical our roots are as a country too, right? That like anyone who's contracted HIV is vilified because it has to happen through some kind of Yep. sexual or blood contact that must not be a, a good one, you know, like that we're, right. we're vilifying sex, we're vilifying all drug use, you know, things like that. And that's not necessarily the story. It's not necessarily so. And that's, and it also shows up in healthcare, right? And it shows, yeah. it shows up on how your provider talks to you or, or police you in, in your HIV and making sure that, you know, you're doing the right Thing. Mm. And I want to make it very clear that your sexual health is your own right and responsibility. It is yes. not the responsibility of an HIV positive person to make sure that your status stay negative. Mm. Um, there's a double standard, or not a or it, it's just like HIV is the is, is is you know 
yeah, I got, you know, this person gave me gonorrhea. You know, I was just treatable and I was able to move on. You know what I'm saying? But HIV is the They try to murder me and kill my life. And I'm just like, that's not fair. Yeah. And we're not going to treat all STIs and STDs the same across the board. Then let's not do that solely just for HIV. Right. Um, because my job is to maintain a undetectable level, maintain my health status, make sure that I, I um, is, you know, doing the right things by me and that you are doing the right things by you to protect yeah. yourself, to make sure that you, you know, if you're negative, that, that, that's your job too, you know? Um, but there's this whole notion that it's, it's, it's the whole, I might, one singular person in the HIV community, mm. whomever I've ever contracted and whether I want to sleep with them or just talking to them, that I am fully responsible for their sexual health. Right. Because I'm HIV positive. Right. It's and it takes two. And it's, it takes two. Baby. It takes two, baby. Yes. <laughs> It takes two, and and um and I'm very open about my status, right? Mm. Very, I'm very open about my status. There's sometimes I'm like, you don't know, like, <laughs> yeah, how do you not know? This is my calling card. <laughs> like, who's not googling anybody yeah. that's dating now? Like, <laughs> yes, you obviously haven't googled me, have you? <laughs> right, I'm like, you don't see the billboard right there. <laughs> um, and I know that you know sexual health and wellness is is is. It's, it's a whole conversation in itself, but you know, you're demanding me to be fully open with you about my status. That um, that I don't know where you will go or where this is gonna go at the end of the day. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And I already know that you are either you're either gonna accept it or you're just gonna be like, this is something not for you, right? right. And um, and that's not fair because you probably, you didn't even fully get to know me. Right. Yeah, what about the fact that this other person, this fictional other person we're talking about is like a totally judgmental person that no one wants to be around anyway because right. they have a bad attitude. Right. What if you, what if, what, you know, what if you snore and that's probably my thing? You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you yeah. want to, you want to stop an HIV? Hey, do you, you, you know, you're, you know, we got to be able to, you know, love on each other and just again know that HIV is a chronic illness. It's not those image how we how it was in the beginning of a, the epidemic and that right. um I'm a human being that has the same desires to to love and be in a healthy relationship. And um I'm well aware that I have an incurable disease, but that is my plight yeah. that I'm taking care of. And also advocating. So like get your things together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is the thing is that you went from someone who didn't get the education to someone who has gotten so much education that now you're educating others. Yeah. I'm curious to know how you sort of found that route through your own health journey. Like, was it because you were given these um, pamphlets by your doctors that you started Googling stuff and finding support groups? Because it sounds like you found your community in reaching yeah. out and teaching others. So... My nurse practitioner, shout out to all the nurse practitioners in the world. Yes. I prefer nurse practitioners than doctors just because of that, you know, it's, you know, it's a nurse and a doctor mixing one and who don't love their nurse? Like, you know, that extra yeah. care. And so. It's that extra human care, isn't it? With that nurses. extra, which, which makes, makes a world of difference. Yeah. Makes a world of difference. And not to say that there's not doctors that have the touch of a nurse practitioner, you know, shout out to doctors. I just like, 
how I was, uh, my treatment through a nurse practitioner. Yeah. But I have a doctor now. He's really cool. Yeah. But it sounds like you've also like found the people who work for you in the right way. Yes. Um, and we're going to talk about that. So yes. my, my um, health practitioner saw the, that pretty much like grabbed me up and was just like, you are failing in this relationship. And when mm. you're failing in your health, you know, I'm failing and I can't do all the work. And so being that she's seen that, you know, my, I was getting depressed. I really wasn't there, really wasn't really, you know. You were getting sick, health. yeah. Yeah. Um, she was like, I think you need to be here. And so she sent me to this training that changed my whole world. Mm. She sent me to a training that was full of HIV advocates that are educators. Mm. Um, and all the youth that were there were also HIV positive, behaviorally mm. infected and, um, and um, perinatally infected. Mm. And that was like kind of the first time that I was around a community that were so open about the HIV diagnoses and that, you know, outside of the training, we were talking about lived experience. Like, you're on this medication. They give you this side effect. And it was just like, it, you know, finding your tribal communities that really relate to you and your illness is so important mm -hmm. because then you really truly feel like you're not alone. And um, it sounds like it also empowered you to become your own health advocate because prior to that, you weren't. And then right. you were able to click in and really empower yourself. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And that's actually, that was the training, becoming your own healthcare advocate. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that it worked. Was the right. <laughs> it completely worked because after that training, I've, I've maintained friends, lifelong yeah. friends. Um, I became a trainer myself, a mentor myself. I became um, more empowered to, to educate myself and educate others. You know, have the prop, they gave me the proper tools and verbiage to talk to my providers. You know, it was really something that really changed my life for the better. I don't know mm -hmm. what type of person I would be had my nurse practitioner did not recommend this training for me to go. Mm -hmm. And I was very skeptical. I was like, I don't, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't wanna, you know, that's I was part a, of the denial. A lot of us are yeah. like not joiners. We don't want to like join a community. Like that just right. sounds a little icky. And then you join them, the community, and you're like, oh, oops, I was wrong about that. This is great. Oh. <laughs> So, so wrong about that, right? Yeah. And, um, and that's where it gave birth to the person that you see here today. Mm. It gave birth to me really taking back control of my life, my health, really giving um, me, me, me more purpose and meaning. Um, purpose and meaning? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, purpose and meaning. Yeah. Purpose and meaning. Um, and that I couldn't complain if I wasn't trying to be part of the solution, right? If mm -hmm. I'm saying, why are people so ignorant about HIV? And I'm like, well, what do you do? You yeah. know, how are you combating that? Mm -hmm. um, which led me to be an HIV tester counselor, mm -hmm. outreach worker. Um, I started going to high school, colleges, community-based organizations, doing HIV education one-on-one, mm -hmm. telling my personal story living with HIV, which led me to, um, to be on national and international campaigns and going mm -hmm. to national and international conferences. And then also... It gave it gave life. Um, it gave my entertainment another meaning because mm. I couldn't. I've always felt like I could never fully express myself through words, and so it came out into my artistry and movement and dance. And I was, you know, I was, I was in a drama club. I was this. I was in so many things, and I was just like, you know, people grasp information different when they're being entertained with the information. Mm. And so 
you know, that led me to infuse my love of HIV and AIDS advocacy with my entertainment platform. And so now when you see me entertaining in drag, you know that there's going to be some HIV advocacy or, you know, in there, you're going to get, you're going to walk away, not, all, not only being entertained, but getting a bit more about me and my life experience. And that you can actually say, I, like, I know somebody's HIV positive and they're really doing this because I know that I, it is imperative that I continuously shape the imagery of what people, how people perceive and look at the HIV community because um, um, the ignorance is, uh, the ignorance is still out there. Yeah. And it sounds like also in being able to reclaim your life and your joy and your vivacity, like your, your excitement about life, that all came with finding the community, becoming empowered, becoming educated. So in seeking information and seeking your tribe, you were able to feel joy even more deeply and then express it in your work as well. Absolutely. Cause you know, let's, let's talk about my intersectionality, right? Mm. I'm a black gay man living with HIV Mm. in the United States of America. Yeah. (laughs) Those are quite a few flags you're flying there. Yeah. Right. You know, and that I know I have to walk out into the world and I know that there are groups that don't like some part of my being, mm. right? That I'm not welcome in certain, like so, so, so many things, right? Mm. And I have to also have a strong mental capacity to combat these things and also manage self-care, right. mental health and all these things. And, um, and I found that through my advocacy that there is a joy, a resilience, a fighting and tools that have helped me in my journey and my working life with all my intersectionality. Mm, so beautifully said. And I think not only your own intersectionalities, but you also are advocating for intersectionalities outside of your own experience too. You're advocating very um, vocally for the trans community in particular, right? Um, But in intersections with your own identity as well, the trans HIV community or the trans and gay community, you know, like all of these intersectionalities for you expand into a wider inclusion. Um, and, and advocacy platforms. Absolutely. And I would love to know as well, like this, this idea of becoming your own advocate, it's one that I think is really hard to grasp for people who are living with a new diagnosis, like it was for you. And do you think that, um, in becoming empowered, in becoming an advocate for yourself, that this has given you a new sense of being, a new sense of self, a new form of self-respect and love? Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that we don't talk about how imagery plays on our psyche on, you know, growing up. The doctor only talked to my mother, so I didn't even learn how to have proper um, patient-doctor dialogue until I got into my adolescence. Um, which was another scary thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was another thing that I had to learn. Then talking about my sex life and having to trust a whole um, stranger and that, you know, from from some of the TV shows that we've seen that, you know, doctors are judgmental. Yeah. So that played, you know, that played in my psyche. And I don't want to be judged on my behaviors because I already feel judged walking out into the world, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to um, unlearn, unpack all these things and once I knew that everything in life is about building relationships, mm. um, first started with myself, self-diagnosis, yes. um, 
education and having to have a better understanding from you and another person's perspective is what made everything much more sense still to this day for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, we're going to get into your experience in the healthcare system in a little bit, but I would love for you to also take us through what, what a typical day is like for you as you're balancing the demands of work and life uh-huh. and working around I mean, do you still get flares or potential symptoms or is that all completely under control? Like what is your management of your diagnosis looking like right now? Okay. So, uh, pre COVID. <laughs> yes. Pre COVID. <laughs> it's a whole nother kettle of fish. Yeah. Right. Okay. So pre COVID, what my life looked like was, um, I decided I, I made a strong decision that anything that I do has to be, has to bring me joy. Mm. It has to bring me joy. It has to bring me joy. And yeah. so um, if I wasn't um, sharpening my, 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 my skills and my artistry or working on my physique or um, cook, like I moved, I moved in to Staten Island about three years ago mm. because I knew that self-care was where I was falling because I was being so available to everybody because when you become an advocate you tend to put yourself on the back burner and just be there for everybody yes and when everything wasn't working right for me i really and i think you know um situations got shook up so to remind me that self-care is key yeah um moved to staten island and then i became more stabilized that i was able to focus more on myself and i was just like okay what are the things that you want to focus on and that was like you know working on my artistry understanding my physical health, but matching my physical health with my mental health, mm. uh, what you would call it, cooking, because I love to cook, love, love dancing. And so just like the things that brought me joy, also taking less work, right? Mm. Because I told myself that why go for the highest value of the dollar if it's not going to make, if you're not going to love it. So I said, I would take mm. a, I would take a pay cut or the things that I love to do because then it's going to make me want to wake up and be fulfilling my day mm. every day. Yeah. Beautifully um, So that was, that was, that was my sense of like my daily activities, just like working on me, working on my art, you know, posting here and there, walking away, managing self care and stress mm. and all these things and friendships. But that was, um, that was pre post. Now during post, um, during COVID, should I say, Mm. Um, it's still all that, but it's also now amplifying voices that I know that need the help. Yeah. That need, that need my, that need my voice, that needs my body. Also knowing that I have a compromised immune system that I can't do any and everything, but the bits that I can, I'm just going to amplify that. more. Mm. Um, and what has been helping me with my mental health is that I feel like I'm, I was built for this and that I have residual strength that I preserved for this specific time in my life. Mm. Um, and just tapping into those wells and just yeah. giving them out and, and having people and, and, and making people feel uncomfortable because it's like, well, why is Ja, you know, cause I've set this precedent online that you're only going to see these things, but people did not know that I was advocating in person because, you know, not everybody needs to know what you're doing. If you're doing it, you know, I don't want to always be the person parading like I did it for a parade. No. It's right. Time. It's not about being performative. It's about actually doing the work. Exactly. Yeah. And so being able to keep our social distance and certain things, you know, now you're going to see all of me coming to the forefront because there are voices that need to be amplified. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. That's, I, yes, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and I'm wondering as well, I mean, this is an invisible diagnosis, right? You know, you yeah. walk down the street, no one's going to look at you and go, oh, he must have HIV, you know? Have you been in situations where you've been confronted and forced to justify your illness to other people? Like, I mean, even your family um, early on, how have those situations played out for you? Uh, so I don't think the justification of my illness, just the justification of why maybe it's so public. Mm. Right. So people um, have taken you at your word when you said, you know, I'm HIV positive. They've gone. Okay. Right. Cause again, mm. I'm gay. So the association is just like, mm. all right, you know, we just kind of know that's like if the shoe fits right. Yeah. Right. Well, like, you know, it was out consider your preconceived notions guys. Okay. Right. Yep. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. um, but when I started being, so I would never forget this. I told my story to a Spanish newspaper article, which I wasn't already, I haven't told my family anything, but I already knew I wanted to make this decision to educate others. I told my story to a Spanish newspaper article, which came out on December 1st, which is World AIDS Day, which I was in Albany doing um, a World AIDS Day event, educating um, high school students up there. Mm -hmm. And so my sister-in-law neighbor saw the newspaper article, brought it to my sister-in-law house, and my sister happens to be there, which brought it to my mother house, and they read it as a family. And then for my sister to text me and say, how could you do, how could you put your business out there? Now you put a shame on the family. Wow. Yeah. So they, it sounds like they were still struggling with the fact that you were gay, let alone the fact that you were HIV positive. Yes. You know, and it was just like, we had to, you know, deal with these internally. Like, you know, first, I guess they probably felt betrayed because I didn't tell them directly. Hence, these are reasons why I didn't. Because I probably know yeah. your reactions. And then um, the fact that now it's out there to the public. And so y'all didn't know. Now the whole New York NYC knows. And now this is, this is a whole thing. And versus rallying around me and support, you went to shaming me. Which yeah. led me to believe that my actions was... Yeah, absolutely. And this also brings us back to that idea of personal responsibility in your own diagnosis, but also in your relationships. Like yeah. you're responsible for sharing any concerns, but you're also responsible for being a good person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lots of nodding. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, which that's why I really, I, I truly, and that's why I'm amplifying the voices um, and the murders of trans women, because it was a woman of trans experience, um, not only her, but there was, but she had a strong aid in like taking me underneath her wing. You know, she she became a mother figure to me. You know, made sure that I you know went to school, made sure that I was going to the doctor, made sure I had medication, made and introduced me to um, more of my trans family brothers and sisters who taught me that not only that not only do I have a title, but there's rights and responsibilities behind that. So taught me how to be a brother, a son, an uncle. You know, a lot of our families are so fixated on our labels and not the responsibilities behind it. Now, I'm going to love you unconditionally because that's just what it is. But respect is a continuing journey amongst all peoples and all walks of life. And you just can't stop short at just your title because we're blood related. Mm. And, um, and, you know, and she really really shaped, really shaped my life. And so and if anything was to happen to her, I would be destroyed. If anything would happen to any of my trans brothers and sisters in the community would be destroyed. Just, I would be destroyed. And knowing that the trans community are being attacked by this current administration, by all angles, by all communities, number rates of, of black trans women are, are, are higher. I think the life expectancy of a black trans woman 
is dropping from 35 to 21. Oh, it is um, heartbreaking. We really do have, you know, a serious issue happening across the globe, especially in mm -hmm. America. And so that's why, um, you know, that's part of my part of my reasoning because it was mm -hmm. like, you know, when one when one group of people that supposed to love me and accept me and affirm me, you know, pretty much left me high and dry. She took mm -hmm. me in you know, knowing little bits of pieces of me and say, you know, I got you. you know. Mm, yeah, absolutely. How wonderful that you were able to connect with someone who was able to help you grow into a man that way too. I mean, how beautiful. So let's, let's jump into the healthcare system. Let's get real about it. Have you experienced prejudice? Have you experienced privilege in the healthcare system? Especially because of the way you, you present, right? You're a black yeah. man walking into a healthcare facility, can you see your circumstances being different? Maybe if you were female, maybe if uh, you were a white man walking into the doctor's office, how do you think race and gender are affecting your experience in the healthcare system? Ooh, do we have, yeah, do, I know it's a, yeah, we, we've got as much time as you need. <laughs> right. You know, because uh, when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, right, you know, yes. we, you know, that movement is specifically talking about, you know, police brutality. Mm -hmm. But there are other issues where, or others, um, other, yeah, other examples. Other, yeah, yeah other, examples of systemic racism. Yeah. And healthcare definitely plays a role, right? So mm. in the beginning of the HIV and AIDS epidemic, it was seen as a gay, they call it grid. Gay and yeah. syndrome, right? Um, and it was white gay men that, alongside black gay men, right? But it was, you know, the charge of the lead of ACT UP was seen by mainly white gay men who advocated for, you know, to have medication. And yeah, because they had privilege. Right. Okay. So that 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 happened, but what happened when they was advocating, they, you know, they left out the black and brown communities, women, black men, black gay men. Mm -hmm. um, and so that left the charge when it came to services for black gay men such as myself that the healthcare really didn't know how to really, you know, handle or treat us or even mm. or even have services. Services was even already scarce. Resources were scarce. Mm. So And this is like in the last twenty years, this is in the twenty first century, because you were diagnosed in two thousand one. Yeah. Well yes. Yeah, or, yeah, well you contracted in two thousand one, you were diagnosed. Yeah, two thousand three. Oh, four. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, um, so, so now, not even knowing this history, but then after, you know, getting into that, I learned the history. So now, have I experienced things? Absolutely. I will say that my adolescent care was the best care as an HIV positive person. I think that was the best thing because there is when, you know, because I'm youth and I'm young, you know, the treatment, the, the, the practice of standard care for adolescents and young adults is way different from adult care. Mm. It wasn't until, like, you know, adult care is when I've seen a lot of those pre-justice. No, pre I can even say an adolescent care because um, health care, adolescent was great, but because I was still on my own when it came to supportive services, that's when it was just like, you need a parent for this. And I'm like, I don't have my parents. I don't have this. And it was just like, well, we really can't do anything for you and I'm like mm. but you already know that the services that you could provide me it you know because housing is healthcare. now you're denying me housing because I don't meet a certain criteria mm. and if I'm already telling you that I don't have this 
you know, now you're, you know, you're not seeing that you're not aiding me, you're just doing your standard protocol, right? Mm -hmm. That was with the standard protocol. In healthcare, I was receiving all the services, but my health was failing because my, the supportive services wasn't fully available. And that's actually also ageism plays into that. If it's, yeah. you know, the, the transition between adolescent and, or pediatric and adult care is like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I got into, when I got into adult care and transition, I was like, oh, when I got into uh, adult care, it was a totally different ball game, right? Mm. Um, you know, I went from having proper greeting at the door, snacks and X, Y, and Z. It was like, why are you not saying hi? You know, because the yeah, bare minimum. <laughs> you know, the people at the front gate, you know, are really, very, really critical to like how you know people treat their healthcare. Mm. Um, and I've I've been asked certain, I've you know, I've in adolescent I was always asked like, hey, are you comfortable talking about this? In adult care, it was already, we're going to talk about this, not knowing where my mental health is, not knowing. Not knowing what your personal boundaries are. That was a form of ageism that you experienced that that was a form of prejudice that you experienced in the healthcare system. What about also your race playing into this, being a Black man? My race definitely came into play as far as like where my risk factors lie, where the questioning of me and, and policing of my sexual behaviors have 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 lied and just you know just like you know are you doing this you know are you are you making sure you're doing this and you know make sure you're doing this and and it was just like you know i've asked i've asked other people that didn't look like me like are these the conversations that your doctor is having with you are these the things that's happening when you are you receiving these these types it of services? sounds like you were presumed to be irresponsible because you're black yeah and gay right yeah so like the 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 prejudgment that you were receiving from healthcare providers was that they had to do all the work for you because you weren't going to because you're a black gay man. Right. Yeah. That's got to be really frustrating. Uh, first, <laughs> and dehumanizing. I mean, this is like, a, this is your life. Uh, it, 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 was, it was not empowering at all. And then, and then I got to a point where I was just like, first of all, the reason why I'm bougie is because I have, a, I have an expensive disease. I'm like, I'm, the disease that's flowing through my body is bringing multi-millions to people, pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. and doctors and social workers and X, Y, and Z. So you're going to treat me with the utmost respect when I'm mm-hmm. walking to this place. Um, and, it, and, and I had to start treating myself and educating and empowering other positive people. Like, don't walk into that place feeling defeated if these people are there to aid you. They're yeah. supposed to answer your questions. They're not... They're not supposed to police you. You are supposed to feel empowered every time. And it was it, it, it was a point where when I started learning how budgets and breakdown, how much my medication was costing, and the whole cost of my whole care and X, Y, and Z, and I can't get a greet and a smile by, um, they're no longer call receptionists, but the people at the front that's going to mm. check me in, that is a problem. Yeah, yeah. That is Because they're profiting from your illness. Right, mm. profiting from my illness, and and you and you don't under, you don't understand how your minute interaction with me that you may think is minute can really it sets the tone. Make want to come, right, yeah, sets the tone. Maybe want to come back or not come back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Would you say? I mean, given your experience and the experience of others in your community that you've spoken to, would you say that racial and gender inequality in the healthcare system is a public health crisis? It is absolutely a public. I think the New York State Department of Health just. just Declared it. 
Yeah, yeah. It is clearly, um, if, if you think about systematic racism, if you think about access to care, if you think about um, medical insurance, if you think about private versus public. If, if, access. If, this is access and education, too. Yeah. If, right. You know, if you, if you, if you think about um, that when, um, when people are in medical schools and how doctors are, are taught to treat the illness and not the person, when in HIV, it's all about the person before the illness. Um, yeah, all those things come into place. And then if you're not yeah. talking about culture sensitivity and um, how, you know, your background is different from mine. I come from, you know, a black and brown background where sometimes the best way to aid ourselves was home remedies, right? Mm-hmm. And that we don't, sometimes look at conventional medication. And so if I have that knowledge and you throw medication to me and now you're saying that I'm not being adherent to my medication, you didn't even, you didn't even, you didn't even care to check about well, why. What, what, right. Why? And then, mm-hmm. and then also health literacy. Right. Right. So we yeah, could go broken. on, we, <laughs> right. We could go on and on. And then um, again, using my platform, using your platform, to talk about the trans community and how there's not enough information, data, research, yeah. um, how doctors are misgendering trans community. Oh my gosh, yes. Trans community have been um, felt violated just even walking into healthcare sectors because you know now you're treating me like a learning opportunity and right. you went to school for this. Yeah. And at, rather than actually looking at people as human beings, which is exactly what you're asking for, um, right. and, and what the community is asking for. So talk to us about your advocacy work. How has the work that you're doing um, begun to bridge the gap in some of these issues? Because you're going out there and you're teaching health literacy. Yes. Um, so when you get into advocacy and activism, you learn how to chase the dollar. You learn, um, you got to go to legislative day. You got to talk to, it, I didn't know that it, you know, it led to local officials. I, I, it's so, it, it, it goes real it's vast. Deep. Yeah, yeah, but like you can be doing grassroots, you can be doing legislative, you can be doing, you know, you can be in D.C. lobbying. Absolutely. There are so many different directions you can go in yeah. as an advocate. Yeah. Yeah. So I started, you know, the community advisory board. Who doesn't have a community advisory board? So, you know, <laughs> I graduated from community advisory board to state advisory to, 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 to um, national advisories and learning that. And the reason why I kept progressing because I kept hearing we can't do this. And I'm like, why can't we do this? The red tape. <laughs> what is this red tape? Mm. Why is, what, what, what does this red tape mean? And it's the money the trail is that red tape. It's, it's about hurting yeah. rich white people's feelings. Yep. Right. And so I had to keep climbing in my advocacy and work on policy that affected my community because the red tape was having people not having access. That's mm. why when I talk about my HIV journey that, you know, it is no surprise that um, same sex, um, sex ed curriculum is not in, in high schools because yeah. that, it, you know, now we're, it's a gay agenda and I'm just like, mm-hmm. okay, so now I got to focus on the transmission versus the, the act because then that helps me at least speak to the whole room. Right. Yeah. Um, well, it's hard enough just to keep heterosexual sex ed in schools right now in places too. Oh, we ain't gonna talk about all of that. Man. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this has got. It's like to me, it's like all I see is like this endlessly frustrating. Like it's it's enough that you are a black gay man who is living with a stigmatized disease, right. 
but that on top of that, what you're pushing for in terms of access and literacy uh, and information and education, it's, it's being pushed aside by conservative agendas, which are largely in denial about the existence of the gay individual, let alone the existence of diseases like HIV AIDS, because they don't want to consider the community and consider everyone and everyone's proclivities in making big decisions when it comes to the way we educate and the way we legislate. Right. Which is always going to lead me to being a, a, a local politician because that's where it's that's where it's actually leading to. Yeah. Um, that's where I actually been. That's where people have been uplifting me to say like that's like the next level. Um, yeah. And I've been using and 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 that's why I've always I, I strongly work in policy because if you're not at that decision making table, you become dinner lunch. Yes. Right. So um, you pull up a chair so you don't have to end up on the plate. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and if you don't know these things, you're not going to be there. You're mm-hmm. just going to stay on a community advisory board level. And mm-hmm. I always empower people, keep going up those multi-tiers because you have to be in those places. You have to line it up. And you also have to be the one to keep the doors open. Yes. And, that's how, and that's how I go with my advocacy. I go, uh, you know, and some people open up the doors for me already so that it's easier for me to, to continue the way that I'm doing. So it does get frustrating, but I know that there is work to be made. I was able to, through my advocacy, one of my highlights was that I was invited to the White House during the Obama administration. Oh, what a dream. Uh, to, to give my recommendation on when the first president to ever create a, a national HIV strategy plan for the United States. The United States prior to that was giving funding to other nations, mm. but the only way for them to, to, to get funded by us is they have to have a national strategy plan. Mind you, so many things was happening in our own backyard. Right. And it and it took and, and it took up until the Obama administration coming for us to actually have a national HIV strategy plan. And mm-hmm. I was one of the key influential persons, people to to be invited to give recommendation on what the national strategy plan should look like when wow. considering positive and negative views. Mm. And that is where my advocacy have led me to because I know that those are well, hopefully that wasn't the last visit to the White House. Maybe the first, but not the last. I ain't going there now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think any of us want to go there right now. Don't no, you worry. <laughs> no, this, this administration, when when they got in, they actually removed the national strategy plan. For the they they have removed a lot of freedoms that were afforded many different groups. Have dismantled the HIV AIDS advisory board for. Mm-hmm. It's really disgusting. And what that is, that's, that's, you know, for those who are listening and going like, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because this is an expansion of systemic racism. When you deny basic rights, basic human rights um, from advisory boards onward to different groups of people, different intersectional groups of people, you're denying their humanity. Well, and I don't, if we can see this, why can't this, what, what, what are the rose colored glasses or dark yeah. shades? That you are having. Well, this comes back to, doesn't it come back to what you said, I think, before we started the interview about, you know, um, or maybe this was during the interview about, um, you know, personal responsibility that like, if it's not affecting me, I'm not going to think about it. And that's exactly what the Black Lives Matter movement has brought up, right? This idea of Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter is a perfect example, you know, that like the idea here is that 
if it doesn't affect you, doesn't mean it shouldn't still matter to you. You know, exactly. if you're a, a white person who's not affected by these racial inequities, that doesn't mean that these racial inequities aren't affecting everyone else in your community. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't stand up. Boom. And that's where, like, that's where, you know, in the beginning of the of, of, of COVID pandemic, when all countries, was, we, we were all on the same boat, I was just like, this is like, we all was caring. Mm. We will have water. It was a united. It was like New York party. after 9-11 for a hot second. <laughs> right. I was like, this is what this I'm This is so lovely. About. Yeah, I was like, this, this was like, we are all, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was, it, you know what I'm saying? And it dealt with health and wealth, you know, yeah. and caring. Because honestly, I felt like the world started catching up with me. Because once I got diagnosed, I kind of became a German folk. And it was just like, you know. Of course because you could be like that could make you have a flare end yeah. up in the hospital because you could be getting germs from other people right because i have a compromised immune system mind yes. you i'm going into high school college you know full of germs you know right going on the train touching the pole all these things you know mm -hmm. and that people wasn't keeping themselves home when they were sick you know mm -hmm. and this made you be conscious of not only yourself and how you can put other people at risk and i was yeah. just like yeah, wear a mask, mask. Just wear a mask, guys. Wear, right. wear a mask. I was like, oh, they're catching up. And then <laughs> George Floyd. And then it was just like, yeah. oh, 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 oh. I we know. Were, we, were, we were getting there. Now that it's, be, you know, it's becoming a public, you know, it's a political thing now. My right to wear a mask or not? <laughs> yeah. We it's were, This country is really backwards. And I, you know, I've, I'm really sorry that like we have to have this conversation under this mantle, right? That like what's hanging over this conversation are the deaths of countless black men, countless trans men, countless trans women, countless black people, countless black women who have been killed at the hands of the police and other systems in power, you know, in this country. And there's that happening, but there's also, as you touched on, this removal of rights that had been put in place for people in these intersectional communities mm -hmm. that is happening at the hands of the current administration. Um, and there's a global pandemic and no one's wearing a damn mask. So this lack of care for anyone else. I mean, if there's anything we've learned here today, it's that like everyone has a different story. Everyone has an yeah. individual, very human story and we need to care about it and we need to wear our masks to show respect for other people. We need to pull up and shut up. Right. I say, you know, I said, I tell people, I'm living in a, I'm living in a pandemic within an epidemic, right? Yeah. Because also the access, the access to testing and, and care for HIV positive people have also been, very troublesome and during this pandemic was shut down right, like all these things mm. that people are just again having a visible um illness that people are just like you know i already knew i was like i'm calling my i'm calling my my pharmacy i had i need two worth of medications i don't know how you get, get it approved you know what i'm saying yeah. i already knew i already had this conversation with my doctor we were already talking about I'm like okay about those certain you know what I'm saying? But not everybody have the, the understanding. There are people that, you know. The people still learning. Yeah, still getting diagnosed or still need to get treatment or just still other things. And then seeing how people are already policing people with COVID and stuff. Where your mindset as a person as with HIV and then mm. you know, COVID, how, it, it, I, it was just so much of similar, similar similarities that I, my, yeah. um, that I was just like. Oh, yeah, this is, it's just like it's expanding even more from. Yes. Something small my, to something global. Yeah, one of my favorite YouTubers is say, America is literally the ghetto. 
I mean, like we have some major improvements that need to be made. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, and, and if we've learned anything from the pandemic and what's been happening to care for the communities that you're a part of, um, it's that everything's going backwards and upside down. And I mean, sometimes I'm like, I, we live in the upside down because I like, I don't understand how. But, and it's just like, I look at it like, okay, if we can get to rock bottom and destroy everything, we only have no choice but to build it. Yeah. And, and, and that is like my saving grace. That's the hope. You're right. That, that, that's the hope because it's just like, we're not taking it anymore. We, we, we're not. We're not sitting down. We, we, we're, we're building stronger allyship. You know, we're we're all fighting for for human rights and just saying that. Like, listen, you can't ship us on a spaceship. Like, we mm. we all gotta we all gotta share this land. We gotta be here. We all gotta be here. We're not all gonna be able to afford to move to Mars. We gotta fix what we got on Earth. Right. You know, because the astronauts left us. I was. I told my girlfriend. I was like, you know, I miss my ride. Spaceship Uber ride because I wanted to pack everything. It's like, what do you wear to outer space? Your first outfit. <laughs> and because I was trying to pack everything, I missed my ride because I was like, I'm, I'm like Earth. I was like, Earth ain't it for me no more. You, prob- you probably have too many wigs to pack anyway. <laughs> this is true. This is true because it's gonna fit underneath that gray stuff. Yes. Yeah, I was like, I was like, Earth ain't Earth isn't it no more. No, it's absolutely. I mean, and it's frightening. And I think this has got to be a time that's also like filled with fear, right? Like, I mean, I'm afraid. So, and I intersect with far fewer uh, minority communities than someone like you does. And like that, that fear is palpable, you know, but what's amazing to me is I talk to you and I feel more hope than I did before I talked to you, you know, like that there is this, we're all searching for something better. And like, we see something better on the horizon. And I guess we're all like desperately clinging to that idea. Right. Yeah, because it's like we have to because one of my friends made it so clear to me that, you know, us LGBTQI people or, or, or just people, marginalized people, we walk into the world imagining the world that we are already living in. Hmm. We come back to reality when some injustice happened to us. And then it's just like, oh, snap, you know, um, but it's now time to take those imagination and make them to, into full things so that we know that these are avenues and building blocks that has to be in place because we can no longer work, walk in the, in the phantom world. We have, to, we have to be part of these solutions. And they're going to be tough. And they're going to be tough compromises. And we may not have all our way, but I'm okay with meeting all communities in the middle. And that's why I'm so happy to have you as an allyship and just sharing a platform because, I, you know what I'm saying? Oh my like, gosh. Yes, I, of course. I tell people, I tell people, I'm not going to be in every room. I, I just need you. I just need you to, what you would call it, be the voice for me. Because now we got to start being the voices for each other. And yes. that's what I've been learning in this, that we have to learn how to be the voices for each other. I'm because really excited for you to run for local government. You're going to make a great, a great politician. This is, and like, that's the thing. It's like, we also need people like you who are not only speaking from your perspective, but also amplifying the voices of others to be actually getting into government and to be creating these legislative changes, which you're already doing, but you can, you know, there are avenues to do it in other ways and more effectively. And that's exactly what creating this change looks like as you move into the future. I already, I already, I already see me in the chambers and full drag and saying. 
I am over here cheering so hard for you. <laughs> I, I, I see my whole campaign. It is, I'm, I'm telling you, already, the people are already ready to endorse me. They said, whenever you're ready. And I'm just like, yeah, oh. absolutely. You know, cause I'm like, uh, I'm, you know, because I like having, that's what I love about my artistry is that it is literally freedom, mm-hmm. right? I, I, you know, I could be politically correct. I can't be politically correct. You know, it's my art. You can't police it. It's how I display it to the world. Some may get it, some may not. And that is a freedom and luxury that I don't have mm-hmm. often as a Black gay man. Yeah. But you can do that on stage. You can do it when you're in drag. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm also glad that you have the ability to to talk about it today. You know, like you didn't need to get into drag to have this conversation today. But, you know, maybe getting in drag would make it more palatable to someone who like has trouble with the hard conversations and needs some entertainment as part of it. You know, like there are just different ways to reach people. And this is... I'm just glad that you're able to talk about it. It's it's very exciting. Again, this is giving me hope. And with that in mind, I would love you to also give us um, your top three tips. I, I, I do a couple top three lists. Yeah. So, and I would love to know what your top three tips would be for someone who maybe like, maybe they've been diagnosed with HIV. Maybe they don't know enough and are learning more. Maybe they're like you when you were 16 and going, being the, the school Samantha, you know, <laughs> what would your top three tips be for someone who is living with invisible illness, who's going through this journey just like we are? Well, uh, my top three would be first, it's okay not to be okay. There's yes. always, there's always rush. It's going to be okay. And one of my good friends, Yolo, told me that healing is a destination. I'm um, healing is a journey, not a destination. Mm. Beautiful. I love that. Right. It, Think yeah. of that, you know, so get that first, tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> healing is a journey, not a destination. Mm. Um, so a first, it's okay not to be okay. Mm. My second tip would be get all the information and resources that you can about your illness because the more you know, the better it will be for you to understand what's happening in your body, to explain to other people, to to help build community, the resources to rally around, you know, I, I, I can't express like the more that you know, the better. Cause I, I, I felt so great that I'm able to have a whole conversation and people are just like, well, I really, I didn't know it too, but now I gave it to you and now you're going to share it with me. Mm. Um, and, and then my third, my third is like, don't lose you. You yeah. are not your diagnosis. It's just added to the story of a chapter in your life. Um, it, it, it doesn't define you, doesn't have to make you or break you. Uh, a diagnosis is just that. And leave it at that. Mm. Yes. You're like making the hairs on the back of my neck stand up with all three of those tips. Beautiful. One other top three list. And this one I think you'll have fun with. Top three things that give you unbridled joy. So you've had to make some lifestyle changes because of your diagnosis, because of your treatment plan. What are you completely unwilling to compromise on that gives you joy? So this can be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities, it can also just be the things that you turn to when you need a dose of positivity. What do you look for? Sleep. Oh, I love. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can express to people. I don't know if some people can't sleep now and X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And sleep. Because that's when your body, your mind, everything is literally resting. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and, and really listening to your body. Like, you know, we are. Yeah, COVID, we go, go, go. COVID, really have slowed a lot of us down which has been positive for a lot of us yeah right 
it, it, it has it has been positive. So like sleep is what am I doing? My goodness, my goodness. Getting my toes and nails done. Listen, I love <laughs> you love it. My manicure and my pedicure has been rough these past few months, but I'm ha- I got them done now. I know, and your and nails look so- awesome. Thank you. Thank you. It's about about pampering yourself, right? It's about, you know, giving you, saying that, giving yourself treats and saying that you deserve this and believe that you deserve it, right? Because sometimes people are like, oh, get you your toes and nails done. I know (laughs) when I look good, I feel good. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. It starts sometimes from the outside in. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to work on this. Like people just start to, people are so separated in like beauty and wealth. And it's like, there's a real good, there's a great connection that is not about vanity when it comes to beauty that really mm. does aid people health. And people really tend to like, it's vanity. Like beauty is not all about vanity. It's yeah. Really, yeah. And we only really see those services, those kinds of like beauty support services in wellness in cancer patients, right? Like when cancer patients are given like a free head shave or they're given wigs or they're given eyelashes, things like that. But like, what if we were able to see that among other chronic illnesses, like free manicures and yeah, things to make you feel beautiful. Absolutely. I always say that my nail tag and my, and my nail tag is my therapist. Like, you yeah. know, we have to think about, you know, you know, you just go in and tell your business and you listen, you're relieving. There's mm. good advice sometimes. Then you're coming out you're talking. I'm telling you, it's a whole thing that I got working in my head. It's a whole experience. It's, yeah, I, I really like where you're going with this. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then my third, my third guilty pleasure is dancing. Yeah, you love it. That's, it's what, it's who you are. It, it, I, I, I can't, I can't live without, I can't live without music. I just can't live without movement. I truly just love this. Like, even when I travel, like, I love nightlife. I love clubs. I love, like, people go to travel to see the tourist attraction. I'm going to listen to what the local music is, how mm. the local people are, the, the dances and everything, because it's just like, it is such, you know, again, looking in spaces or places where I can feel the most free. And it's just like, when people are at a party or when they hear music and they're just letting go. And I say, I take my problems to the dance floor. I love those experiences. I'm like, I don't want the party to end. So, um, Going, going to as many different bars and just dance. Yeah, I love it. I love that so much. What about, what is your ask for listeners today? What can people tuning into this episode who've been touched by your story do to support you and your community in the continuing work that you do? I ask that when you hear Black Lives Matter, that we're not talking that all lives doesn't matter. We just need your voice your 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 resource all that to amplify that what's happening with the belief brutality against the black community is is wrong yeah that the black community's house is on fire right now so we gotta right. take care of that house okay as 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 well as we show up for you and just do understand that you know allyship goes a long way and let's try to be ambassadors of change and not ambassadors of chaos um when it comes to when it comes to the HIV, when it comes to the HIV positive community, have um, more empathy. Understand that your that your sexual health is your sole responsibility, and not the responsibility of the HIV positive community or any other sexual health community. It is your sole responsibility, um, and it doesn't hurt. And it does it, it um, and and yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end it right there. <laughs> Love and, it. Um, 
for me, just be better human beings. That's all mm-hmm. I ask about anybody. Just be a better human being to yourself. It's like you gotta love on yourself too. Because mm-hmm. then when you love on yourself, then you know how to, you know how it shows up, you start building language for it, and you and you can receive it and also reciprocate it. Absolutely. So what's next in your advocacy and wellness journey? Is it a possible run for a local seat? <laughs> possible run for a local mm-hmm. seat. Um I, 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 I see me performing internationally often as I can. I have been performing internationally. I see me um, educating and navigating the next wave of advocates because mm-hmm. I know that that's also a position that people are looking, at, looking up to me. And I also want to make sure that I'm making the room for the next set of advocates because it, it's, it's always the, the generation before um, not before after us the next generation carries the torch yes the next generation carries the torch but i also have to be willing to able to 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 hand that over yes but also with guys tools however you want to do it here this is yours make what you do with it um and i and i see that and i see me doing that on a global scale helping people find their voice through their advocacy love, you are a total delight and it has been such an honor to speak to you today. And uh, I mean, for those of you wondering, Jalav has a, a, a very stable roof over his head now. You know, like this is this is a story of redemption for you. And and uh, you've built a new life and a new home for yourself. And I commend you on your your inner strength and resilience and uh, your ability to share what you're learning with the world. It's a beautiful and inclusive thing. And what a lesson in how to spread love and joy. So Jalav, thank you so much, especially at this moment in time for giving us your time, your energy, your presence, um, and your thoughts on how we can all be better people. And thank you for finding the better version of yourself and uh, sharing it with the world. Oh, you just gave me goosebumps, Lauren. No, thank, uh, you did, you know, thank I, Cause you never know, like, all the things that I've been through in my early early years of life truly did prepare me for all these moments in time. And the times that I was questioning on why I was going through, I don't question them now because I yeah. exactly yeah. why. You've so made peace with it and you're in a better place. And like, that's it. these things had to happen for you to be who you are today, which is an amazing, exuberant, vivacious man who is full of life. Yes. Thank you for, thank you for this opportunity. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.